For a great number of people yesterday, um, it was all about costumes and candy and haunted houses and scary movies and ghost stories around campfires. Uh, For others, it was still about candy and costumes, but it looked more like fall festivals and corn mazes and uh, uh, pumpkin carving and hay rides. But for still others, yesterday was about a German monk and a hammer and a list of grievances against uh, clerical abuses in the Roman Catholic Church. And the beginning of what could be said, uh, is an underappreciated event that set in motion uh, what one author called the greatest move of God's Spirit since the days of the apostles and the greatest transformation of Western society since they first preached the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. Of course, I'm talking about Martin Luther, and I'm talking about his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, and what began the Protestant Reformation. And while those, that nailing of those theses on October 31st of 1517 is rightfully marked as that defining moment when it all began, what is often overlooked is the previous, uh, the, the years before, the seven years prior. For many years up until 1510, Luther had had been driven to despair. He was driven to that despair because he was continually confronted by the law that revealed the righteousness of God that was a condemning standard of judgment. But through a series of events that began there in 1510, including his discovery of the disparity between the Latin uh, meaning of justification, which is to make righteous, and the Greek definition of the word justification, which means to count or to regard or to declare as righteous, Luther began to be graciously consoled by the gospel because the gospel revealed a righteousness from God that made sinners right before him. I want you to listen to this letter written by Luther's youngest son that is on display in the library of Rudolstadt, Germany. It describes, um, at least we think, how things began in 1510. He wrote this, in the year 1544, my dearest father, in the presence of us all, narrated the whole story of his journey to Rome. He acknowledged with great joy that in that city, through the spirit of Jesus Christ, he had come to the knowledge of the truth of the everlasting gospel. It happened this way. As he repeated the prayers on the Laternan staircase, the words of the prophet Habakkuk came suddenly to mind. The just shall live by faith. Thereupon he ceased his prayers, returned to Wittenberg, and took this as his chief foundation of all his doctrine. We also have record of Luther himself writing that as he was lecturing in the book of Romans in 1515, He says, it was in the first chapter that I found the solution to my difficulties. What was that solution? It's our text tonight in Romans 1, 16 and 17. And his solution was this. 
The gospel is enough. The gospel is enough. We've already read the two verses tonight, and so the outline can be found on the back of your bulletin, but it looks like this. We're going to look at Paul's lack of shame, the gospel's display of power, and our abundance of life. The lack of Paul's shame, the gospel's display of power, and our abundance of life. And as is our custom, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Well, Father, we believe that your word is authoritative and inerrant and sufficient, and through it you grant us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. So in these moments, please give us ears to hear it, that we may be complete and equipped for every good work to which you have called us. Please use me in these moments as you see fit. In the name of Jesus and for the sake of his church, I ask these things. Amen. Well, let's look first at Paul's lack of shame in verse 16. Uh, When we read the first 15 verses prior to 16 and 17, uh, we see that Paul's love for and his overwhelming sense of indebtedness that he felt toward God and his love for the Roman Christians created this significant sense of obligation for him to preach the gospel there in Rome. He had not been there yet. Um, He had heard of their faith. And because of what he had heard, he had this strong desire to not only pray for them, uh, but to come to them so that they might be strengthened and encouraged, and so that they might in turn strengthen and encourage him. It was going to be a two-way street but the question is, why the gospel? Why, why the message of the cross? Why herald the good news that Christ came to save sinners? Why proclaim that Christ had died according uh, to the scriptures and that he had been buried and that he had, he had been raised from the dead three days later according to the scriptures? Why announce the penal substitutionary atonement of the Son on behalf of weak and helpless sinners who weren't simply ambivalent toward God, but were enemies of His. Why would Paul put himself in danger with those who believed that allegiance to anyone else other than Caesar would be treason? Why not present a more palatable message that would draw a larger crowd and potentially secure a more popular segment of the population that financially and influentially could ensure a greater and more widespread impact in the city. And wasn't he writing to those who were already believers? So why would he not move on to so-called deeper, more spiritual things? And why not motivate them through the use of the law to reaffirm their commitment to be more diligent and and to put more effort in being morally upright or to take a stand and wage a culture war against the obviously corrupt and oppressive systems and practices of the governmental powers that be? And the answer is because he knew the gospel was enough. He knew the gospel was enough, and therefore, he was not ashamed of it at all. He didn't fear 
any embarrassment or possible ridicule that could arise from those who boasted in their worldly wisdom and power and superior intellect. He wasn't afraid of being laughed at or dismissed as being illogical or irrational or just plain insane. He knew the gospel would be dismissed as utterly foolish by by those who valued power and strength and independence and control and dominance and self-service and exaltation because the gospel has themes of humiliation and sacrifice and servitude and dependence, humility and selflessness. He wasn't concerned about personal personal rejection or rejection from family and friends and was even willing to undergo emotional and physical duress and even pain at the hands of enemies for the sake of Christ and his church. And brothers and sisters, I think we need to ask the most obvious question. It's a tough question, but one that we need to ask nonetheless, and and the simple question is, can the same be said of us? Are we ashamed of the gospel? And how do we know? Is there evidence one way or the other? What does the evidence show? Do we betray ourselves and what we profess by what we do and don't do and by what we say and don't say, depending upon the circumstances that we're in? It's something we must consider. Why was Paul not ashamed? We've gone through a few things, but he even says why he wasn't in the text. He understood the gospel's display of power. And really, this is a three-part answer. He he speaks of its efficacy and, and, and its extent and its execution, another way to put that, and I think I've put that there in the back of your bulletin, it's, it's power. He understood its power to produce an effect, and he understood the scope of that effect and the way that the effect is, is um, personally experienced. And then if we want to simplify it even more, we basically, he understood the what, the who, and the how of, um, of the gospel's power. First, it's efficacy. In verse 16, Paul says, the gospel is the power unto salvation. The word Paul uses there, of course, is is the word dunamis, which we get our word dynamite and dynamic. I'm sure you've heard that before, but his point, of course, is that he is not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is that which continuously and actively produces extraordinary changes in the lives of people. In other words, the gospel produces results, and if we were to be even more crude, it would be the gospel works. The gospel is divinely powerful to save, and salvation has nothing to do with human wisdom or effort. It has nothing to do with human devising or contriving. Paul would say later on in this very same letter in Romans 10, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So Paul says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It's through the outward proclamation of the gospel that the Spirit works inwardly to regenerate those who are dead in their sins. It is through the Spirit that He grants the gift of faith. And through that outward proclamation and the preaching of the word and the sharing of the gospel, Christ Himself speaks about Himself by His Spirit to the hearts of men, women, boys, and girls. The person who proclaims the word does not hold the power. The power is not in our eloquence of speech or in our charismatic presentation or in our ability to hold and engage and hold a crowd. And I'm very happy for that. Paul says, actually, in 1 Corinthians, that our attempts to dazzle and manipulate and entertain actually distracts from and empties the cross of its power. The message that is foolishness and a stumbling block is actually the power unto salvation. Therefore, Paul was not ashamed. He also understood the extent of the gospel's power or the scope of the effect. Look again at verse 16. He says, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Very simply, Paul is clear that the gospel's efficacy is not limited to a certain gender or to a certain age or to a certain social class or to a level of intellect. It's not... um, It's not boiled down to or only for certain ethnicities or certain nationalities. And therefore, the sharing of the gospel and the preaching of the gospel should be indiscriminate, as Jesus taught in the parable of the sower. The only qualifier Paul says and lays down here is, was and is belief, which is what brings us to the execution or the how. Paul's making a point, of course, that the the gospel is not efficacious to those who who obey the law or who are even circumcised or baptized. The power of the gospel unto salvation is for those through the faith that God has granted as a gift are, are convinced of and rely upon and trust in the person and work of Christ alone for their salvation. And this isn't a mere acknowledgement or a mere assent. We're talking about a perceiving and a reliance, a perceiving and a receiving, and a reliance upon the truth that Christ died for sinners, and more specifically that Christ died for me, a sinner, and Christ died for you, a sinner. 
And in verse 17, he expounds on how this works, and he uses Habakkuk, he quotes Habakkuk to say that it's always been this way. This isn't something new that he came up with. This isn't a new plan. This is how it's always been. And he says, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, for it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He says that in and through the gospel, God reveals a righteousness that is both from him and that pleases him. He says that it is a righteousness that he bestows and that he approves of. So it begins and ends with God. It's not a, he, he's not talking about a righteousness that we possess inherently. And we know that from our Old Testament reading earlier, or not, not our Old Testament reading, but from our um, uh, confession, of, uh, confession of sin reading from Romans chapter 3. He writes later that none is righteous, no, not one. And he quotes Psalm 14 in the midst of that text and says, no one does good, not even one. He says the same thing in another way in Galatians, and he writes to them and says, it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. And then he explains later why, one of the reasons why that's the case, and he says, if righteousness was through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So it's not an inherent, it's not our righteousness, but it's also not, uh, it's also not God infusing within us His divine attribute of righteousness either. Paul's describing an alien, what we call an alien righteousness that's imputed to us. It's something outside of ourselves and it's something that is credited to our account. It's a righteousness of another that is, that is placed, upon, placed upon us. And of course, Paul's speaking of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. It's Christ and his righteousness that is granted to us and credited to our account. Later in chapter 4, he says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered, and blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. We have this accounting language of counting our sin toward us and then counting his righteousness toward us. Because of the Lord Jesus, our sin will not be counted against us. He says later in chapter 5, For if because one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man... Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, for our sake. He made him, God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Paul's point in verse 17 could, couldn't be clearer. Through the gospel, God reveals to us what was once a mystery. That which was 
that which was purposed prior to the foundation of the world and was announced after the fall in Genesis 3 and was fleshed out throughout the Old Testament has been revealed fully in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ came to passively work through his sacrificial and substitutionary death on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, a penalty that we could not pay on our own. And he paid that penalty so that we would be forgiven and could be forgiven. But he also came to actively work on our behalf to live perfectly and to fulfill the law completely so that we could be holy. And children, here's the word that I mentioned earlier. It's all about a divine exchange. When we come to him in faith, right, our sin is placed upon him and is credited to him and his, as, as if he were the one who had sinned. He who knew no sin became sin, taking on our sin. And, and what happens? He places his per, perfect life, his righteousness on us. And so we stand before the Father, and, and many use uh, this to, to define justification, and they say justification is just as if I never sinned, and then they stop. But it's so much more, because it's not just as if we never sinned, it's also as if we were always holy and righteous. We've been forgiven and we've been imputed with the righteousness of Christ. And Paul says that this is by faith to faith, which means it's all about faith. It has nothing to do with your work or my work or any work at all. We are not initially justified by our works at all. We don't maintain our justification by working and we're also not waiting some final justification as if the verdict is outstanding and waiting for us for good works. We've been justified by faith. If it were up to our works, brothers and sisters, we need to realize that any works of ours just put us further in debt. And any attempt on our part to add to the work of Christ says very specifically that we believe his work to be insufficient. And it was anything but. He did it all. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but his active work on our behalf and we cling to that hope through faith we're justified by faith alone apart from any works lest anyone should boast our confession in chapter 11 puts it this way those whom God effectually calls he also freely justifies not by infusing righteousness into them but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. 
nor by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God, faith thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification. We have no one to look to but Christ and no one to thank but God himself for having been declared not guilty and standing before the Father forgiven and holy as saints. Well, that brings us to our abundance of life and this is really more of an application of that second point and, and really our conclusion. Um, the Gospels, uh, well, it's the application of the Gospels display of power. And I, I want to read a short quote from a man by the name of David Zoll. He's written a book called Seculosity, How Career, Parenting, Technology, Food, Politics, and Romance Became Our New Religion and What to Do About It. In it, he says this. Listen carefully and you'll hear the word enough everywhere especially when it comes to the anxiety and loneliness and exhaustion and division that plague our moment to such tragic proportions. You'll hear about people scrambling to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, charitable enough, woke enough, good enough. We believe instinctively that were we to reach some benchmark in our minds, then value and vindication and love would be ours. That if we got enough, we would be enough. But then he says this, but here's the wrinkle. One so well worn, it hardly bears mentioning. No matter how close we get or how much we achieve, we never quite arrive at enough. Our lives attest that the threshold does not exist, at least not where fallible and finite human beings are concerned. Instead, people are suffering and dying under the torture of the fantasy self they're failing to become. Nevertheless, we spend our days chasing the mirage, often to the detriment of our well-being and that of our neighbor. And in his own way, Mr. Zoll is describing our perpetual pursuit of both attempting to become righteous and maintaining righteousness in an effort to self-justify ourselves. In other words, we all want to be accepted by God. We all want to be accepted uh, by others. We all want to feel good about who we are within ourselves. And, and we seek that acceptance and we seek that affirmation through our performance. How well you know, do we live a single life? How well do we do marriage? How well do we parent? How well, how well, how well, how well? Am I enough this? Am I enough that? And we do that because somewhere along the way, we've, whether it's natural and 
we're instinctual, we're environmental, and we've learned it, we've bought into the idea that acceptance, both divinely and humanly, can be earned and merited, and that we'll, we can feel better about ourselves through our own effort. But that's not a life lived by faith. It's not a life lived by faith, and it's, it's not a life of abundance. The abundant life that Jesus refers to in John 10, I encourage you to read that this week, but it's a life of peace and joy and security and rest. And Jesus himself says that only comes, that abundant life only comes in and through him. And so in Paul's words, as we learned in Galatians, any other gospel that teaches or places our hope of salvation and abundant life in anything other than the full once for all justification that comes through faith alone by the imputed righteousness of Christ alone, apart from any work on our part, past, present, or future, is to be considered anathema. Our hope is in Christ and His work on our behalf. It was sufficient and complete. It was lacking in absolutely nothing. And brothers and sisters, my encouragement tonight is is that we need to get off that perpetual treadmill of self-righteousness and self-justification that we habitually jump on, whether it be spiritually or in the ordinary day-to-day goings-on of life, and live the abundant life of peace, joy, and security and rest that is ours in Christ. And we need to help others do the same. Not being ashamed of the gospel, bringing the gospel to bear in the lives of those around us. People are worn out. Many believers are worn out because they bought into the lie. Christ alone provides that rest. We need to cling to the gospel. Proclaim the gospel is enough because it was enough for Paul and it was enough for Luther. It should be enough for us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Father, we thank you. And we do pray that we would receive what you have spoken with faith and love, that we'd lay it up in our hearts and we'd practice it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.